Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer, Senior Reporter, and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Carrie Hyatt Bennett from the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We talked about the group's satellite attorney program and the need for pro bono representation for domestic violence survivors. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with reporter Alexa Shrake and managing editor Daniel Carson to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, June 28th, and these are your headlines. We'll start with the Indiana Supreme Court, where justices handed down an opinion in a case stemming from a trucking accident. Daniel, you had that story, so what happened? Appellant Catherine Davidson won a $3.2 million verdict in Lake County against Jay Trucking after a 2018 semi-trailer accident that left her quadriplegic. But she can't sue additional defendants in Monroe County for their alleged roles in the accident, the Indiana Supreme Court affirmed, in upholding the Monroe Circuit Court's decision to dismiss Davidson's complaint. The 2018 accident happened in Monroe County, where Davidson was a passenger in the vehicle driven by her boyfriend who worked for Jay Trucking. Her verdict award came after a 2019 Lake County bench trial. But after she filed a second negligence suit in Monroe County, the Monroe Circuit Court dismissed it with prejudice and denied her subsequent motion to correct error. She appealed that decision, and the Court of Appeals of Indiana reversed holding that neither collateral estoppel nor claim splitting barred her claims. The case then went to the Indiana Supreme Court, which ruled June 21st that the claims Davidson inserted in Monroe County are barred by the doctrine of issue preclusion and that a plaintiff seeking tort damages from both government and non-government defendants must sue all such tort feasors in one lawsuit. Justice Jeffrey Slaughter wrote the court's opinion. Justice Christopher Goff also wrote a concurrence that said he would not, quote, lay down a hard and fast rule of procedure in mixed theory cases involving both private and governmental defendants, end quote. Sticking with the high court, the Supreme Court is taking public comment on rules that would become the state's first guardian ad litem guidelines. Topics covered in the proposed guidelines include minimum qualifications to be appointed as a guardian ad litem and requirements for best interest advocacy. Under the proposal, a person couldn't serve as a guardian ad litem if they've been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor involving a sex offense, child abuse, or neglect or related acts, or if those charges are pending against them. The training guidelines would require an initial 12-hour course covering 12 listed topics, including a code of ethics, then annual continuing education after that. Comments on the proposed guidelines must be submitted by noon July 19th. You can do that on the Indiana Judicial Branch website. Alexa, you're working on a story about these guidelines for our next issue, aren't you? I sure am. We'll be looking out for that then. Now we'll go back to you, Alexa, for some big news regarding gender transition procedures for minors. The law that would have banned Indiana doctors from performing gender transition procedures on minors was enjoined earlier this month, just a few weeks before it was scheduled to take effect on July 1st. Judge James Hanlon of the Indiana Southern District Court issued a preliminary injunction against Senate Enrolled Act 480 on June 16th. Here are the oral arguments in the case just two days prior. The lawsuit was filed by the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana almost immediately after Governor Eric Holcomb signed the bill back in April. In his order, Hanlon acknowledged 
that the state has a, quote, strong interest in enforcing democratically enacted laws, and defendants have shown that there are important reasons underlying the state's regulation of gender transition procedures for minors, end quote. But Hanlon also said that if plaintiffs had shown a likelihood of success on their claims that the law would violate their equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment and their free speech rights under the First Amendment. The preliminary injunction restrains the defendants, which include the individual members of the Indiana Medical Licensing Board, the executive director of the Indiana Professional Licensing Agency, the attorney general, the secretary of the Indiana Family and Social Services Administration, and FSSA from enforcing Senate Enrolled Act 480 against any physician or practitioner and relating to any patient. In a statement, the Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita's office said the state would, quote, keep fighting for the kids via legislation like SEA 480. Now back to you, Daniel, because we have a more detailed look at State Representative Jim Lucas's DUI arrest and plea agreement. Police footage obtained by the Indiana Capitol Chronicle shows a smiling and sometimes laughing Jim Lucas after his arrest in May for driving under the influence. The Republican representative pleaded guilty to two misdemeanors, operating a motor vehicle while intoxicated and leaving the scene of an accident after he struck a guardrail and drove the wrong way on an interstate entrance ramp while intoxicated. He received a 60-day suspended sentence on the OWI charge and a 180-day suspended sentence for leaving the scene. Lucas failed multiple sobriety tests with his blood alcohol concentration registering at .097, higher than the .08 legal limit in Indiana. But he engaged police in conversation and was generally cooperative during the stop, according to the Capitol Chronicle. He talked to police for nearly 30 minutes about a variety of topics, including social media, Hunter Biden, firearms, knives, and Frank, the weather, and the law enforcement profession. Indiana's GOP House Speaker Todd Houston struck a non-committal tone on whether Lucas would face additional discipline by the legislature, telling the Capitol Chronicle soon after the plea deal that he hadn't spoken to Lucas or seen the agreement. He said, quote, I'll take a look at it and see what we do moving forward, unquote. Okay, we unfortunately have news of two judges who recently died. Alexa, what can you tell us? So this month, two prominent judges in the state passed away. First was former Court of Appeals of Indiana Judge William I. Garrard, who died on June 2nd at 91. Garrard was appointed to the COA in 1974 and served on the appellate bench for 26 years, then another 16 as senior judge. His opinions were known for their directness, lucidity, and brevity, according to the court. His most notable was Castleman v. State, which established Indiana's Castle Doctrine. That doctrine provides a measure of legal protection for homeowners who resist unlawful entry into their homes by law enforcement officers. Grad was a recipient of Wabash College's David Peck Medal, three Sagamore of the Wabash Awards given by Governors Otis Bowen, Evan Bayh, and Frank O'Bannon, and the Indiana State Bar Association's Presidential Citation. He graduated from what is now called the Indiana University Maurer School of Law in 1959 after serving in the U.S. Army. Then, on June 11th, former Monroe County Judge Viola Talaferro died at 94. Talaferro was also a graduate of IU Maurer, graduating in 1977. She was considered an icon and groundbreaker in Bloomington and the Monroe County legal profession. 
After graduating from IU Mauer, Talaferro opened her own firm focusing on family and criminal law cases. In 1989, she was appointed magistrate judge for the Monroe Circuit Court. Then in 1995, she was appointed judge of the Monroe Circuit Court 7, becoming the first black person to be appointed judge of the Monroe Circuit Court. While on the bench, Talaferro focused on paternity, probate, mental health, commitment, and juvenile cases until her retirement in 2004. And one more thing from you, Alexa, this time for an ethics opinion from the American Bar Association. So the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility released an ethics opinion earlier this month to provide guidance on using legal assistance to perform client intake tasks. Formal Opinion 506 mainly looks at the Model Rule 5.3, which addresses the managing and supervising of non-lawyer assistants plus other model rules on client communications. The opinion, released June 7th, says, quote, trained intake personnel may check for conflicts of interest, collect basic information from prospective plaintiffs or class members for lawyers to ascertain their eligibility to a claim and explain how fees and costs are charged in such cases, end quote. But the opinion also states that the lawyer should ensure the prospective client is always offered an opportunity to discuss the fee arrangement and scope of representation with the lawyer. To round out our headlines here, let me tell you about an article I'm working on for our next issue about the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Second Chance Workshops. This is where people can get help with things like suspended driver's licenses and child support services. I went to the most recent one at Lucas Oil Stadium. Aside from about 100 volunteer attorneys helping with the legal work, there was a resource fair with job opportunities, anti-violence programs, and even a diaper bank. You can read that story in our July 5th edition. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, theindianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft. Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined over Teams by Carrie Hyatt-Bennett, Carrie is Chief Legal Counsel for the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and she's an adjunct law professor at IU McKinney. Thanks for joining me today, Carrie. Why, thank you, Tyler. Thank you for having me. So first, I saw on your LinkedIn, because I stalk everybody's LinkedIn (laughs) before I talk to them, you've been with the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence since 2005, a little more than 18 years. I'm wondering, in the arc of your career, how did you end up there, and then how have you stayed for so long? The arc of your career. Hashtag you're old. Actually, I I came to the domestic violence business or work through a colleague of mine, Judge Jane Magnus Stinson, who recommended me for an opening that they had for a uh, an executive director at a brand new shiny nonprofit called the Protective Order Pro Bono Project. And that was in 2001. Um, At the time, I was working for a big law firm and I really appreciated the work that I was doing, but I was also looking for something where I could get a little more hands-on and work a little bit more directly with people. Um, I have a past as a 
as a deputy prosecutor. So I was kind of wanting to do a little bit more litigation working with individuals. And so that was the Protective Order Pro Bono Project. And that was in 2001. And I was lucky enough to work with amazing people like Deb Hepler and the Marion Superior Courts at the time were just amazing when it came to protection orders and working with survivors. So I learned a lot. And it was basically a program that provided pro bono legal assistance to domestic violence survivors through a cooperative agreement with the Indiana University School of Law in Indianapolis. So we provided pro bono attorneys and law students. So you were mentoring the law students, you were representing a survivor, and it was also a really fulfilling pro bono experience for the attorney. So that was a that was a that was a very neat thing to do. And I really appreciated that work. And when I moved over to ICADV in 2005, it was basically an extension of that kind of work, but just on the statewide level. So, and has your title, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. So I just, I really appreciate the work. I've learned a lot about working with and on, and on behalf of survivors of violence. I've, I've, I've learned a lot and hopefully trained more than a little on trauma-informed legal representation and the importance of understanding your client when you're representing them. Has your title always been chief legal counsel at the coalition? For the most part, I think I was once the only counsel at the Indiana Coalition. So I don't know if chief legal counsel would re really be reflective of that, but now I do have a legal staff that is uh, pretty amazing. We've expanded to to more than one attorney, I'm happy to say. And um, so I think that title reflects the fact that we have a couple of more lawyers working with us. I know one of the things you have at the coalition is the satellite attorney program. How does that work? I love this project. The Satellite Attorney Project was created in 2016, and we're one of the few coalitions in the country that actually has a direct legal services uh, component of it. We are not primarily a legal services organization. We are a coalition against domestic violence that has a legal services component to it. And it started in 2016, and it has expanded ever since. And it's basically a limited legal services project that provides civil legal assistance to survivors of intimate partner violence. Those survivors are referred to the to the legal services project by our domestic violence programs. So if you think of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence as this umbrella organization over all of the domestic violence programs in the state of Indiana, of which if you include batters intervention programs, there's probably 75-ish. But if you think of that, then I serve as their general counsel, but then I also run a legal services program that provides legal assistance to survivors that are referred to us by those programs. So if it's a shelter in Lake County, if it's a direct service provider in Vanderburg County, if it's uh, sheltering wings in Hendricks County, uh, we have all of these DV programs. And when they're working with a survivor that has an emergent civil legal need and they can't afford counsel, then they refer that case to us. And hopefully we can provide them with legal assistance. The beauty in this is there's about 60 plus attorneys that contract with us to do this at a modest means hourly. So we're paying the attorneys to represent the survivors. Um, and it's a pretty unique model. And like I said, we're one of the few coalitions in the country that does this. And it's been a really good experience. It's been 
not only a deal breaker for survivors who really wouldn't necessarily have any other options for legal assistance in an emergency protection order hearing or in a uh, divorce litigation, but it's also a rewarding and income generating thing for my colleagues, other lawyers to do. So hopefully it's a win, win, win. And one of the beauties of the way the project is designed is every survivor that is referred to us by the domestic violence program is working with both a victim advocate from that program and also the attorney that's assigned to that. So they have this holistic representation that I think makes a big difference for survivors because we're pretty good lawyers, but we're not necessarily the best DV advocates, you know, and the DV advocates are great DV advocates, but they make lousy lawyers. So it's nice that we can provide that holistic service to a survivor going through that. So how much demand is there for that kind of representation for survivors? There's actually a tremendous demand. There's We certainly cannot take every case that's referred to us. We have to gauge them on emergent and income-based, and that's a difficult decision to make. But if you can imagine the myriad of ways that a person is victimized by an intimate partner, very much of that is economic. So sometimes we have people that are out of their abusive relationship, but at the same time are being litigated to death through the system being driven towards bankruptcy because they can't afford counsel for repeated motions. It's nice to be able to kind of lawyer up on their behalf and provide them with an attorney that can even out that playing field. So yes, there's a tremendous demand and we are so lucky at ICADV to have some incredible people that work with us and contract with us. The legal advisory committee that we have at ICADV is made up of some tremendous professionals, including law firm members that bring a lot of resources to the table to assist us. And we just have a really great working relationship with many members of the bar. Did you say earlier you have 60 contracted attorneys? More or less. Yeah, we've got about 60, 65. What we try to do is use events like the training in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana. And there will be one later on this year at, in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana. So um, because they're both fulfilling obligations by the Power Act, which is a federal act encouraging them to do some training on domestic violence. But we use those those forums to try to recruit attorneys to work with us. So we explain how the program works. We do Domestic Violence 101, which is more or less a CLE about legal issues that survivors face. We talk about how the project works and um, there's definitely more need. But my goal as the project director and supervisor is to bring on as many attorneys as we can, which gives us the flexibility of seeking out to individuals depending on the case we have. So if I have a case in St. Joe County, I'm going to reach out to Jeff Flazzi because he's a colleague of mine in St. Joe that works with us. And uh, it's nice having the flexibility. So when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I just can't do it. I've got a trial schedule that is unbelievable and I just don't have the time for it. I'll go okie dokie. Uh, and then I'll and then I'll look for somebody else in that area that might be able to do it. So that's why we try to recruit a lot of people. Basically, we offer free CLEs to them on a quarterly basis. Uh, we have a pleadings bank, which I think is very cool. 
we have a listserv so people can feel safe that if they have a question about doing something they've never done before, they can ask the listserv. And the listserv is a, is very accepting and understanding. And there are veteran lawyers on that listserv and there are newbies on that on that listserv. And I remember what it was like to be a newbie 35 years ago. And sometimes it's scary. You don't know who to ask and who you can trust, and you don't want to look like you're an idiot. So listservs are awesome. So there's lots of little perks that come with being a satellite attorney as well. I might be showing my ignorance here, but what is a pleadings bank? Ooh, no, it's okay. A pleadings bank is basically if somebody needs to file a certain kind of motion, but they've never but they've never written one like that. A pleadings bank will give you forms that you can go from, right? So let's say, hey, I need to file a motion for a fee waiver for a survivor that I'm representing, but I've never done one of these. Can anybody give me a heads up on a form or give me some advice? It's a safe place where lawyers can ask questions. They can get forms, redacted forms, obviously, because we're working with survivors. But it's a safe place where you can mentor each other, which to me, as somebody that's been in this business for a while now, that's one of the best benefits is being able to mentor young lawyers and um, bring some people up, especially when especially when it comes to working with survivors, because it's just it can be very rewarding work. And going back to the demand there is for this kind of work, are, are there enough attorneys in general out there, do you think, to meet that demand? Oh, probably not. You know, we always have the consistent challenge of of providing representation to litigants who can't afford counsel. That's just an ongoing thing. There aren't enough legal services lawyers out there. There aren't enough pro bono attorneys out there, and we do the best we know how to do. But I tell you what's really helping is our ability to appear remotely. Uh, that's been a kind of a big game changer in those areas that we can do that. It's very helpful because then we can provide counsel even if that counsel can't go to Jennings County for a hearing or can't go to Du Bois County for a hearing. So it's an ongoing challenge, but we're doing what we can. Do you hear concerns from attorneys that maybe they're just not, they're not qualified to give that kind of representation? Oh, yeah. And understandably, there are times where I want to do something pro bono. Like one time I signed up for the Indianapolis Bar Association's program on providing wills and estate documents to low income individuals completely out of my area. I was like, I had no idea what I'm doing. So the first thing you want to know for any kind of pro bono or modest means situation is, can I have some training? Can I have some mentorship? Can I can I have somebody to hold my hand here to make sure that I'm not messing up? Especially when you're working with survivors, because I think a lot of attorneys are apprehensive apprehensive about working with survivors because they because of any potential lethality. So that's one of the reasons why we hold hands, we mentor, and honestly, one of the goals of this project is to train people about what survivors go through and to make it very trauma informed in that way as well. And they're also working with an advocate. So sure, we train them all up and there are no dumb questions and it's a learning experience for everybody. I've second chaired with some people before because they don't necessarily want to go in alone. So we're here to help everybody. You mentioned earlier though, there's at least not the pressure to also be 
an advocate, right? Because the survivor has somebody specific for that. So if you're the attorney on this case, you can really just focus on the lawyering instead of having to also worry about, am I being a good advocate, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think you can. I think it's difficult to do both. I mean, I can give you the best legal advice possible. I can give you I can give you some idea of what to expect. I can tell you what the law says. I can tell you how the facts that you're giving me will probably roll out. I can't necessarily tell you what you want to hear. And that's the difference between being a lawyer and, and an advocate. Yes, I believe you. But at the same time, what can we prove? How are we going to do this? And that's a nuance that is not completely advocacy, and it shouldn't be. We have a job, and the job is to prove it to the court. So if there's a lawyer listening to this and they're thinking, you know, gosh, I'm, I might be interested in doing that kind of work. I mean, what's your pitch to that person? My elevator pitch. Yeah. My satellite attorney name, project yeah. elevator pitch. If you're looking, for, oh, we also provide malpractice insurance. So it's a, um, it has been very attractive to people that are retired or semi-retired. If you're looking for a fulfilling experience that is somewhat income generating and um, helps an individual survivor, at least reach out to me and find out more. I mean, this is very personality driven and we try to remain very flexible and open and approachable about issues that survivors face and the attorneys that are representing those issues. So we work as it, we really do kind of promote the team approach that we can holistically deal with the survivors' issues one by one and in the and in a way that really responds to their specific case. Speaking of just reaching out to you, I mean, do you find that attorneys who get to that first initial very very basic step um, get some sense of relief? Maybe that the fears that they had were maybe not justified after they do the the very basic thing of just like, hey, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about this. Oh, yeah. No, it is. In fact, that's what a lot of our follow up CLEs are on. They're on. We ask those attorneys that are working with us on the listserv, what do you want to learn about? What do you want to see? You know, and how can we help you do what you're doing for us in a more efficient and better way? So next month, we're going to have a bankruptcy, bankruptcy 101 for survivors of domestic violence, because what we are seeing is sometimes survivors are going to end up declaring bankruptcy because they are, for one reason or another, financially devastated. So let's make that less scary. Let's explain to them why that may be a better benefit from them than having debt chase them for 15, 20, 25 years. So we try to remain very responsive to not only the survivor, but some of the knowledge gaps that the attorney that's working with them might have. So you mentioned the Indiana Southern District Court, uh, the CLE event coming up about this kind of representation. That's on July 12th. And you're presenting at that, right? Yes, I am. I'm going to be talking about it's going to be a CLE that's already been approved, Mary, uh, Mary, at the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana. She's taking registrations, I think, by email. And it is going to be about an hour of domestic violence 101, which sounds like you probably don't need the CLE, but it's really helpful because it helps uh, it helps individuals understand where under the Indiana law that intimate partner violence is relevant and when you can argue it. 
It breaks down some of the specific laws. It talks about trauma-informed legal representation and explains in general how the Satellite Attorney Project works. So what's your goal when you do CLE events like this? To make the issue less scary for people that hear domestic violence and start to go, oh my God, I can never do that. Because, well, just to to make the issue less scary, more approachable, and to try to encourage individuals to, in the time that they have, uh, maybe donate some of that time back on, you know, to represent a survivor. One of the things that I think works best about this project is if I reach out to you and you don't have the bandwidth to take a case, or you're not feeling completely comfortable with taking that type of case, so maybe can you be mentored Or, hey, can I get somebody to do this with me so I can learn while assisting the survivor? Nothing's off the table. We just just try to holistically fill some knowledge gaps, provide competent legal representation to the survivor, and, um, and that's the way it works. We have more information on that event, by the way, at theindianalawyer.com. But I want to make sure I have this right, Carrie, before we go. If if you're somebody who maybe can't make it on the 12th to that hour event, there's a Zoom option too, right? Yes, sir. There certainly is. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for joining me today, Carrie. I really appreciate it. And that'll do it for this week's extended interview. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.